This is Steph Bastian and welcome back to the Tattoo Tales podcast. In this week's episode, we have Dr. Sophie Mort, which the Times called the guru of Insta therapy. Now, I came across her work by reading her book, uh, A Manual for Being Human, which trust me is life changing. Now, you might ask, why do we have a psychologist on a tattoo podcast? Good question. I really want to try bring you value in different forms and for personal experience, I believe that if we want to express our full potential, we need to tackle everything that is around it, not only at the core, meaning not only knowledge, not only skills, not only tools, and that kind of stuff. Mental health and mindset is a big part in you accomplishing your full potential because we all at some point had to deal with some self-limiting beliefs and some form of self-sabotaging. Uh, things that might undermine our confidence, imposter syndrome, comparison, that feeling of you're not good enough, right? Uh, you need to prove that you're good enough. Now, this is exactly why we have Sophie on the podcast, because she's so good at explaining how to deal with this stuff. And she has some very practical uh, tips. I uh, highly recommend you to read her book if you would like to know more, because it gets more into in detail. Uh, about how to approach those steps to get better at things. So I'm going to let you hear this directly from her and I hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, Sophie. Hello, how are you? Very good, very good. How are you? Very well, thank you. I've actually just woken up like literally 15 minutes ago. So I'm away at the moment. I'm in America. So the time zone just meant that when I saw it, I was like, pretty jet lagged. I will just wake up and have a coffee with me and hopefully won't come across as someone who's just perfect. Cheers. Won't come across as someone who's been asleep until 15 minutes ago. Now, listen, I just came back from LA for an exhibition and I'm still wrestling with that jet like i wake up sometimes at two in the morning and i'm like yeah. that's it and my my brain is like go 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 i was like no One, no don't <laughs> exactly 100 percent. to be honest i it's funny that i only woke up 15 minutes ago because actually uh at five o'clock this morning i was like may as well get up because of the jet lag as you're saying and i was like no come on maybe maybe you can sleep and then passed out slept through an alarm woke up 15 minutes ago like ah jet lag's <laughs> a real thing is this something fun you're going to do there um enjoy being in real sunshine unlike nice. being in England where the summer has just really sucked nice where are you at um I'm in LA so okay yes. nice nice um so first of all thank you for making the time I know you're very busy okay. and, and you know you have a lot going on so I really really appreciate it. I was really excited to be invited onto a podcast that wasn't just a straight up psychology podcast yeah, tattoo podcast, huh? Yeah, I was really delighted. So I was like, no, no, I'm all in. <laughs> nice. Yeah, because sometimes, uh, you know, very briefly, uh, you know, this podcast is about tattoos, right? So I, I try to celebrate the life and achievement and the vision of people that contributed, blah, blah, blah. But the point is, I try to bring value to the people listening because I, I know uh, there is a, you know, different people in the audience, but a lot of people are tattoo artists, creatives, artists, amateurs, or people that have nothing to do with this, but they're into this kind of stuff, right? So I can relate to a lot of what they go through because I do go through that and I went through that, right? Uh, and now we will get there in a second, how it applies to, you know, to you. But I try to bring value to them uh, with the words of people like yourself from different fields that 
can help them in their journey, not necessarily on learn how to draw this, right? Yes. And, yeah. and I've learned by, I, I teach some seminars and, and, and mentoring and this and that. And the more I talk to people, I realize that it's not only the fact I don't have this tool, I don't know this technique, I don't have enough years in my bag. The thing is, which I experienced firsthand myself, self-limiting beliefs that self-sabotage you, right? So yes. you can be the most talented person in the world and you can get access to that. So that's why I said, oh, you would be perfect for this because I'm sure that a lot of people can, you know, one way or another, like relate. So thank you for, for making the time. Oh, no, it's my pleasure. And also just as a total side note, um, obviously this isn't quite true, but I feel, so I've got quite a lot of tattoos, like uh, not loads, like I'm not fully covered, but for, for a therapist, I have think I have quite a lot of tattoos for what's expected. And every, this is a fun little story. Every time I used to get a job, that or like kind of progressed to the next level of my studies where I felt like I was expected to be a suit you know what I mean like you're expected to kind of dress up and always be really overly respectable the day before I'd go and get a new tattoo and it was Mm. like my personal thing of not only marking the occasion but more for me things like they won't know that that's not they think I'm a certain way like certain kind of person but this tattoo kind of really symbolizes that I'm my own person so like on the hardest, uh, a really silly one is, I got this job where I was so utterly out of my depth and I was expected to be this kind of really good girl. And I got um, a kitchen knife tattooed with a drop of blood on my ribs the day before. And it was such a small act of rebellion, but I just really sat there on my first day thinking, no one here thinks I have a kitchen knife on my ribs. They all think I'm like this quite square, you know, like do everything kind of right and proper type of person. So that's also why I'm excited about talking on this. <laughs> So you, you understand where we come from. <laughs> yeah. You, you know, on a, on a side note, this is what I love of tattooing. This is also something that we as tattooers like because it's not just about pretty pictures, right? It's the fact yeah. that you can meet literally and interact people from all walks of life. I got yes, people that have been tattooing for a long time and told me stories about, I don't know, this uh, professional killer that was getting tattooed by him. <laughs> or like, you know? So wow. yeah. And with the, with the thing about hidden tattoos, I find that so fascinating. If I could go back, I would, I would plan my tattoos differently because um, just a quick example, there is a guy, yeah. a guy who's 60, but he got a bodysuit. A bodysuit is when you get basically one big tattoo of your whole body, right? And this guy is wow. massive. He's a German dude, amazing guy. Uh, Enrico, such a beautiful person. So he got this amazing big suit and he, worked, he used to work in a bank. So until, you know, he got his last thing, which is the sleeve that comes out of the sleeve and you can see it, nobody knew. And I'm like, this is so dope because these guys' tattoos yeah. are like three times me in terms of yeah. service, right? So one day they go to a swimming pool party, I think, and then he undress and people freaked out. I'm like, oh, I God. love it. I love it. You know, you're a bank, banker it. and you're dead. You're like, you look like Yakuza. Amazing. Oh, my and, God. Uh, yes, I love let, that. Let me ask you, like, the fact that you know sometimes you, I don't know if your tattoos are visible much, but do you think that sometimes that might have helped you relate or pe- help people relate with you in terms of ah oh, she's not a sterile yeah. doctor she's a person and you know yeah hard yes hard yes I think it, in many of my so I worked in the National Health Service which is this you know brilliant free at the point of contact service in the UK. Um, until I left to set out on my own in order to try and reach people who couldn't get, you know, who couldn't get onto the waiting lists because there's so few resources at home. 
So in the NHS, I pretty much was made to cover up all of my, like most of my tattoos, but I had a septum ring and you could see just little bits like that, which was a hint. And so you'd see people, you'd see people come in and be like quite nervous, but they just get a little flash of ink and they'd be like, oh, you're like a person like I am. And it was a really good in. But after I left the NHS, I found people very, very clearly were like, I want to work with you because of X and Y. And sometimes having tattoos and piercings just made people feel like I was much more relatable. Yeah, so definitely, I think people find it much more relatable. And not only that, I have therapists reach out to me saying, oh, my God, it's such a relief to see a therapist who has tattoos and piercings, because then I feel like I can be a therapist. Whereas before, I felt like I was meant to kind of hide all of that and pretend that it wasn't a side of me. They're always the person like in charge and, you know. Yeah. And so for the people that, you know, are not too familiar with you and your work, right? Would you, would you like, which, which you already did a little, uh, tell your story a little bit. Uh, you talked about, you know, you getting out of the NHS. Um, but like, how did you end up here? Now, that, I know that's a big question, right? Because eventually life sorts itself out and you end up where you, where you kind of, but how did you end up doing this? What is it that, you know, put you on this path that, that made you want to, you know, listen and help people like that? Yeah. Okay. So I'm Sophie. I'm a clinical psychologist. Um, I also write books and I'm the mental health expert at Headspace in the UK. And I always wanted to do art, actually. So um, in kind of school, I did some pretty serious subjects. So I did kind of maths and physics and design, but really uh, went to do an art foundation, really thought I was kind of go down, going to go down that path. Then at 18, kind of 19 years old, I started having panic attacks out of the blue. It was so sudden and so shocking. I couldn't leave the house for about three months. And I really thought that my life was over. The only kind of reference points I had for people going through this kind of thing were the movies in which someone who was struggling was categorized as mad or bad. So I was like, I don't know what's happening. I feel like I'm dying. And probably my life is over until I got the right kind of help. And after I learned how to manage my panic attacks, I was like, I can't believe that people can A, feel this bad and B, the answer is out there, but it's just kept behind waiting lists and closed doors. And why aren't we sharing this kind of information just openly? So I dropped out of art school (laughs) and did a psychology degree because I was like, this information just needs to be out in the public. And so I did a psychology degree, did a master's in neuroscience, did a doctorate in clinical psychology, because becoming a clinical psychologist is an insanely long path. And pretty much within kind of two years of finishing my doctorate, I realized again that even working within this kind of free and absolutely brilliant health service, the waiting lists were getting longer. And so people who were struggling would sit on a waiting list maybe for up to a year without the information that they could have had to get rid of, or at least um, make their experiences more manageable. So I left my NHS job. I was like, right, I'm going to disseminate psychological, psychological information, good quality information before people need it. Meaning hopefully that we can get to people early on proactively rather than reactively when they're already struggling. So that's kind of a whistle stop tour of how I got to where I am. Yeah, yeah, I I love that philosophy because I I try to have that approach with physical, you know, maintenance. Let's call it that because I had like 
lower back problem for many years. And then eventually you read, you study, you practice, you learn, and you realize, dude, prehab is better than rehab. Oh, yeah, I love that. I haven't right? heard prehab. Exactly, exactly. So I really, I really, it's very, it's very interesting to, to hear like, oh, you can do that with your actually mental health, you know? Very and it's much. always like, especially with work and stuff, like in some jobs more than others, but you don't do anything or worry until it's too late. Meaning like you overwork yourself, you know, you get yourself so stressed out and then you break and like, oh, what's happening? You know, and, and you think it's normal to just keep going. And like, why is this happening to me? It's like, dude, you can't just keep going, right? But anyway, yeah. it's very interesting. And, and so you, let me read here what it says about, I think the Times, quoting the Times, right? About your book, A Medal for Being You, right? Uh, it says, A Medal for Being Human is a mother load enlightening on why you might feel and behave how you do, right? Now, I love that book, especially the attachment models part, which I wasn't familiar with. And I was like, oh, she's talking about me. <laughs> uh -huh. um, now, um, briefly, what, what would you like to, you know, talk about this book, how it came into being and uh, what was, you know, the after, like how it was received? And also, what is the thing, if you can remember, let's say that someone told you after reading the book and that one thing stuck with you in terms of, oh, this really changed my life for the better because of, or whatever, some impact that someone told you, like, oh, wow, okay, if you can remember. Yeah, I'm going to start with the last question just because my memory works in that way. Um, I think the thing that's really stuck with me is anytime someone has said to me, this book has helped me realize I am not weird. I am not alone in feeling many different things in one day and in a lifetime and criticizing myself for that. And the other thing that stood out the most is, and this was a big compliment for me, was the fact that the book felt more like a, like a knowledgeable friend sitting across from them, you know, like with a cup of coffee or a glass of wine, rather than that kind of um, unreachable professional who you can't really relate to, but who's good at giving advice. So those are the two things that stand out to me. The book and how it came about, I think what's interesting is there's so many brilliant podcasts lacking is a way to tie together all of the different pieces of information. So for example, let's say you're struggling with your self-esteem or you're struggling with your relationships. You might look up a book on self-esteem or on attachment like you were just referencing. But actually what ends up often happening is you find out a bit about one area of your life yep. and then you go and try and put that stuff into practice and you're like, well, I've done this bit, but now there's this other thing that's popped up and I don't really know how to tie all that together. So with a manual for being human, I wanted to give people more than kind of psychology 101. And the book starts with your very first breath. It literally talks about you kind of coming, kicking and screaming into the world and talks you through everything that shapes you in that kind of first third of your life. Then it talks to you, so who you are, how you are, why you think the way you do. Then it talks to you about what's keeping you there and then gives you the skills to move forwards. So irrespective of where you are in your life trajectory, whether you're a teenager, whether you're in your 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s or 60s, it helps you understand every aspect of your life, not just one. 
And to me, that's very important because I don't want someone to have to go away and read 30 books in order to understand where they yeah. get <laughs> I wanted to feel more like a therapist who's trained in loads of different areas, being able to tailor make your plan for you. Yeah. And what is the thing that you see that people also for your, you know, uh, professional experience, what do you see that is the, let's see the thing or the aspect that people struggle with the most? Oh, golly. In life? Um, I'd say two main things. One is feeling genuinely safe in their relationships. When I say safe, I don't mean physically. I mean emotionally safe in their relationship to say, I am weird. <laughs> I have all these strange parts of who I am and I'm okay with showing that to you. Because I think a lot of us are always trying to come across in a way that seems acceptable to others. So I say, I'd say that's kind of the first one is feeling comfortable to show up in your relationships with a kind of warts and all approach. And the other one I'd say, particularly nowadays, is just managing kind of general anxiety and stress that is pervasive. And perhaps because of the speed at which we live, is now almost accepted. I don't know if you've noticed that. I don't know if it's the same with you in your line of work, but it's almost kind of normal just to say, oh my goodness, I'm so stressed. And just yeah. assume that's how life has to be or not recognize that actually your stress has tipped over into potential burnout or not recognize that it's tipped over into anxiety. So yeah, relationships and stress and anxiety management are kind of the two main areas that I see people struggling with these days. Okay, yeah. A lot on this note, um, I would like to you know to tell you a couple of things like the way I see from this side, right? Like you just mentioned in my line of work, funny, it, my line of work, you know, there are many ways to do things, but a, a traditional way of doing it, especially if you are a little ambitious and you want to get better, la 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 la, that is this, especially in the US, uh, there is this mentality in tattooing, right? That you are supposed to just work you know eight hours in the shop 10 hours whatever hours is then go home and draw you know do all these homeworks and then you just have to do this on the weekends after you know which i've done for like at least mm -hmm. 10 years 15 years right i've been doing this for 20 and it's funny because i mean it's not really funny but when i talk to people and then they get this guilt where if you don't work that way you leave aside all your commitments, your relationship, your mm -hmm. thing, and you just draw and paint and tattoo and this and that all the time, then you're lazy. So they feel that, yes. am I doing enough? Even if they're working in the shop and outside of the shop, I don't know, 60 hours a week or something, you know? And they're like, this is this picture is so sick. And the worst is that the picture itself is not aware of its sickness. 100%. It's like a badge of honor, isn't it? To, to give yeah, it your, to your tradition, like to your career and your tradition. And um, I can imagine, I have no idea if it is the same, but I can imagine almost generation to generation of tattoo artists, it being seen as kind of your payment. So like, in order for me to progress to the next level, I'm meant to show that I've dedicated minimum of 60 hours to this trade. Mm to progress um I would also I'm curious because in my experience um with tattooing um 
often I imagine that people get into tattooing because they want to uh, tattoo in their own way, right? So they have their own designs and their own drawings and their own style that they really want to tattoo in. But often I'm imagining when people start out, they have to just do the tattoos that they're asked to do when someone comes in, you know, mm -hmm. kind of flash or something that's just been downloaded from uh, like a computer or Google image. And I'm imagining that one of the kind of um, challenges for tattoo artists as well is being allowed to have your own voice, being allowed to have your own style, being allowed to say, I want to tattoo in this way rather than the dolphin that you've just brought in, you know, drawn on a napkin. And yeah. the reason I mention it is because when I was saying, I think people struggle with showing up and saying, this is who I am in their relationships. I'm imagining that a challenge for tattoo artists is saying, this is who I am as a tattoo artist, rather than who you're trying to tell me I am. Yeah, it's, it's really a fine balance, right? Because yeah. uh, when, you, when you, you go through different phases in your career, right? Uh, I like to quote this thing. I don't remember where I took it from, but it's like sort of a, the four stages of learning or something like this. And the oh, first yes. stage is you don't know that you don't know. Yes. Right. That so that is that stage where you're blessed by ignorance. So you you think you know it all, right? <laughs> and then eventually, you know, you 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 find out that you don't. So now you know that you don't know, right? And, and mm -hmm. so on and so forth. So there there are all these different stages. But uh, when you talk to people, for example, with this podcast or, or with work, you know, I, I interact with a lot of older tattooers because I, you know, I love to suck up all that that you know experience, right? And People have been tattooing for 30, 40, 50 yeah. years or more. They all have the same vision because they already uh, got out of them their needs to paint, explore, do exhibition, do this, do that, because eventually in 40, 50 years, you're going to do some of this stuff, right? So yeah. then eventually they all say the same thing, that this is a service industry, you know, and then eventually the people are the main thing. So it's a fine balance between expression, which is important, right? Yeah. But... Uh, I want to put an accent on the fact that it is is a service industry because sometimes, especially younger people, I've been there, I've done that. You know, you might get the wrong perception of this job is my platform to shine. It is and it isn't. Yeah. You have a certain creative freedom sometimes, but sometimes it's just service industry. You know, so what, what you get out of it is like, I'm going to put to your service my skills and my experience to take your idea and make it better. But without saying, oh, you are just a canvas. I've heard sometimes people calling people canvas, and that is the worst thing I've ever heard. You know, mm -hmm. like, dude, that's a breathing person. You know, so anyway, it's it's this fine balance, right? But that's definitely a point that people bring up a lot because it can be frustrating depending which you know dynamic you are in the shop where you work. Sometimes can be much more free. Sometimes can be much more walking based. But mm -hmm. definitely there is that conflict between I want to do my things, you know, mm -hmm. and then also you had to serve the person it is a fine balance but i think with with time and years if you keep a certain constructive mindset eventually you get there and i say this because sometimes i've heard people tattooing for a long time but the mindset is a little bit uh, destructive so to say you know mm -hmm. so then just become bitter and bitter and bitter and you don't even see what you got in front of you right just because now you paint everything in that light right but yeah. you know that's the longest like and just I, I want to just tie that back to your comment about this kind of toxic industry where you're expected to work all the time. I think um, two things are really important, whatever you do in life. One is figuring out what you value truly, right? If you know that what you value is not only being creative, um, which I'm assuming is one of the things in tattooing, but is also kind of interacting with others, helping them feel the best in their body, 
Um, if you know what you value and you don't grind yourself into the ground early on trying to achieve that, I think then you can have a kind of career that will last you until you are that older person that you mentioned coming on your tattoo, uh, coming on your podcast, who really still values their job. Because if we're told we have to work 60 hours a week and we're feeling bitter and we're not feeling like we're able to express ourselves, that's really the fastest way to burn out rather than to longevity and success. Yeah, even on a on a very practical level, right? Usually, you know, when, when I do all these classes and stuff, I try to tell people, because again, I, I burned out, I went through all of that. And I say, you are not supposed to work harder. You're supposed to work smarter. You know, because like you said, it's a badge of honor if you suffer mm. with cry and blood, you know, to make that drawing. <laughs> yeah. It's like, how about you try to find a way to optimize where you need to put in the hours? That's a, that's mm. a fact, right? But you don't need to put in the unnecessary hours, right? Mm. So it's a bit of a shift. There is a beautiful book by Greg McKeon called Essentialism that talks about this stuff. And also his podcast and, and it's about getting no more things done, but get the right things done. And sometimes, you know, we miss that and be like, no, I'm just going to keep working. It means that I'm good. Like, no, you're not. Like, who, who, who are you talking to? And to this, I want to, I want to, this brings us to to something I wanted to ask you for what I found. And again, it's just my experience that there are going to be millions, 90%, 95, 99 of the things, you know, eventually tied back to the little voice inside of you that said, you're not good enough, right? Whatever that comes from. And that's why, that's who you're trying to please, not even your boss mm-hmm. or your clients. It's that little voice. And the thing is, wherever you go, it's funny because people move countries, you know, change shops. It's like, look, uh, you bring that thing with you. So uh, until you address that. So some of the most common issues that people, you know, keep uh, having to deal with, and, and I try to help in my little, is always the same thing. Imposter syndrome. They feel they don't belong self-sabotaging beliefs so lack of confidence meaning they would like to do that i work with them i see how they draw how they do things and i see the potential they don't mm-hmm. right so that's why in, in some seminars i have a section called mindset where i try my little experience you know to be like okay let's talk an hour about this and like what are we going to talk about stoicism and tony robbins and like yes we are. <laughs> <laughs> you know because this is what is going to enable you to use the stuff that you've learned because otherwise many times happen the same people tell me oh you know i make a mistake i get frustrated i rip this thing off and i don't take the brush for one more month it's like it doesn't matter how many books you read you know if Mm -hmm. you cannot right so what would you say mm, comparison what would you say is the dynamic of this like how does this you know briefly then of course it's Mm -hmm. you know people should read your book um where does this come from Okay. most likely and then how can people kind of start dealing with it then obviously some people might need a, a proper path with a with a specialist but where can they start you know in dealing okay. with this so, so firstly shameless plug i actually have a second book that came out this year called unstuck and there's a whole section dedicated to self-sabotage so kind of if people are looking for a practical resource unstuck is a good place to turn um but it's really interesting what you're saying because it when I'm listening to you speaking, what I'm thinking is there's literally no area of work in which people aren't affected by this. This is not a tattoo industry thing. This is an everywhere thing. This deep 
uh, drive to finally find out, oh my goodness, maybe I've been enough all along. Maybe I am good. Maybe I am worthy. Maybe I can do the things I want. And so kind of, I do think that one of the reasons that everyone is feeling like this or many people is feeling are feeling like this is because we've grown up in a society that's constantly demanding perfection and showing us perfection. And when I say perfection, I mean it in an ironic way. You know, you consider all the magazines you grew up with where everyone in it was kind of airbrushed and not even the models in those pictures look like that, right? And we were told those are the people who are worthy of love and, you know, acceptance. And so we're constantly- Praise. Praise, exactly. And if you think that really the main human drive is to be accepted, to fit in, and if we've learned early on that those are the people who get it, no wonder we're constantly finding ourselves lacking and kind of whipping ourselves to try and do more and more. So I think that feeling is really pervasive. I think one thing that's really interesting is that often people, and myself included, we listen too much to our thoughts. We take them as uh, concrete truths. So if our thoughts are something like, I didn't do a very good job at that. Um, this sucks. I need to work harder. Everyone's going to laugh at me. We think because we thought it, that is the reality. We don't pay enough attention either to the fact that thoughts are stories, right? That will pass if you let them, which is kind of a mindfulness perspective, or enough to the voices of the people who truly know us outside of us. So, you know, you were saying you can see that these people are really creative and are doing brilliant work, but they're beating themselves up on the inside. A really simple thing for all of us to do is start thinking, do you know what? Who around me truly knows me? And who around me do I trust? And I'm going to risk over the next week or month using their thoughts about my work as my kind of cornerstone, you know, as the thing that guides me. It's such a simple thing. It's actually much harder to do in real life because your inner critic is still going, no, no, but what if they're wrong? <laughs> but if you're able to mindfully notice, well, that thought that I had is a fear and this person trust I trust is unlikely to lie to me, I'll give it a month of trying that out. So that's kind of one thing. A second thing is comparison, yes, is the thief of joy, but only in certain scenarios. So comparison is actually something that all humans have evolved to do to compare themselves to the people around them for helpful reasons. <laughs> so it's meant to be that let's say we were growing up in a tribe, we would be able to look around us and say, okay, so who is kind of the one that people say is doing the best in the tribe? Who is the one that's most helpful? What is it that I'm meant to be doing? Now I compare myself to them and see what I'm not able to do yet. So I can learn how to be a better contributor to the tribe. So I think a helpful thing is also to start seeing comparison as helpful within certain circumstances. If you want to be motivated, compare yourself to someone who is only slightly ahead of you on your career trajectory. So instead of looking, I mean, it's great to look at the Beyonce of tattooing, right? I don't know who that would be, but yeah. you have those kind of results. But look at someone who's maybe six months ahead of you or one kind of design feature or skill ahead of you. Use them as your, oh my goodness, if I do X, then maybe I'll get to Y. And 
Compare yourself to either where you were six months ago or someone who is slightly behind you or is apprenticing to you in order to remind yourself of where you've come from. Now, both of these will engage, will lead to motivation rather than that feeling of collapse where you think, oh my God, I'm never going to get there. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm, Totally. So it's it's more realistic thing yes. to actually look at rather than this ideal of yes Michelangelo. Exactly. Yeah. yeah I went to CrossFit for the second time last night total side note and then I, so the first night I went there I was so intimidated everyone was so ripped right I almost walked straight out because I was looking at people who'd been doing CrossFit for 10 years now I'm literally like a limp piece of spaghetti I have no muscle tone whatsoever and because of the comparison it was nearly too much But instead, I looked at someone else who was in the first class with me. And then I looked at someone else who was just who was doing it for the second time. And I was like, okay, I can actually get to this to there. Right. If I come another day, I will have done this twice. Right. I'm motivated to push through because I can see someone who's just ahead of me. And I can see the person walking past the CrossFit door who's not even going to bother coming in. Right. (laughs) Then on day two. I picked up the weight and, oh my God, I'm so bruised. I can't even tell you. But this time I kind of knew how to pick up the weight and comparing myself to who I was the day before, I was like, I'm still a noodle, but compared to yesterday, I'm doing really well. So it was very important for me to almost put blinkers on and not look at the other people who've been doing it for 10 years. They're kind of my Beyonce, but for for me to be able to continue going, I have to look at people who are only one class or two classes ahead of me. And the people who are one class or two classes behind me. Like people are in the same league as you. It makes no sense to, right? Yeah, 100%. And it's not about getting rid of your heroes. It's just about not, it's about recognizing that when you compare yourself and you feel like shit, excuse my language, that's because of the way that we've been built biologically, historically. It's not because you are actually failing. Yeah, beautiful. And, um, just just personal curiosity, right? But how would you see, because I talk about this a lot with my girlfriend and she has a very, like, I'm pure logic, she's pure emotion. So you know, we, we give each other that. Um, so I'm learning, I've been learning a lot over the last couple of years and how especially, uh, you know, males have this different approach, which sometimes can make things even harder because you know, you know you're not allowed to cry. You're not allowed to even say, I don't have emotions, bro. You know, that yeah. kind of stuff. You, you're you not even allowed to acknowledge that. So how are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm okay. You know, you're not, mm-hmm. right? So how, how I, I guess you see that because that's, that's your line of work, but how do you, how could it be a start? And to start losing up, but as I said, they, to start, because you can't just like, oh, open up and tell me everything. It's too much. Yeah. You know? So one step at a time, right? Well, where, where would we start? Okay, so I want to talk about this in two different ways, if that's okay. One, just talking about generally kind of expressing how you feel and the other very specifically related related to work and self-sabotage. Okay, so the first one is um, (laughs) just simply look in your world, in your social media for other men that you look up to who are able to express themselves in ways that you might like to going forwards. Because actually it's all well and good for me as a woman to say to you as a man, it's safe to be vulnerable. You can tell me how you feel, 
But if you've had it ingrained in you by society, which most men have, that you are not meant to do those things, that you will be shamed if you do those things, you're going to hear me say this and be like, yeah, logically, I get you. But your body's going, no, don't do it. That's dangerous, right? there. Right? I totally can imagine that. I mean, I don't know your experience, but it's so common for men. So look around you. Look for particularly people that you respect and you think of who are powerful and yet are still able to say, I struggle, you know, sometimes I cry. Sometimes I'm totally overwhelmed and have no idea what I'm doing. And observe those people for a while. And then when you feel a bit more confident that as a man, you're allowed to express things vulnerably, decide on something very, very, very small that feels safe to you to express. Maybe, for example, you say to a friend, yeah, you know what? I'm worried I'm going to fail at this thing. Or yeah, you know what? I almost felt like crying the other day. Those two things may be too big. Choose something that feels manageable. Say it to the person you trust the most. And this is a fun trick. Do it side by side, not looking in their eyes. Men are socialized generally to do activities next to each other, such as watching sports, going to um, like uh, chatting about the thing that they're doing, whereas women tend to be socialized to look each other in the eyes and chat. And this can be very intense for a man. So side by side, just dip your toe in the water, say something that feels a bit vulnerable, see what happens. Now, the more you expose yourself to doing this, learn that it's totally fine and you won't be shamed over time you will feel more confident to do it okay so that's the first thing now the second thing is I want to just very briefly go back to something that you're talking about in terms of self-sabotage where you feel like you've not done something very well and then you avoid working for a long time now everyone self-sabotages right self-sabotage is really a term that means safety seeking behavior it means It doesn't mean we're destroying our own lives on purpose. It means we feel some kind of fear and then we take action to get rid of the fear. So let's say, for example, you are about to tattoo something or create something that is so important to you and you're partly excited, but this voice comes up and is like, oh my God, you're going to fail and everyone's going to know about it and everyone's going to laugh at you. Now, what's your kind of immediate response to that? Well, for most of us, it isn't, Do you know what, Sophie, it's going to be okay. Even if you fail, there's always a way through it. It's normally avoid that thing at all costs. This feels unbearable. Yes. And so when we pull away, we get this short term fix, right? We feel better. We're not facing our fears anymore. But long term, we get in the way of ourselves having a good life because we're never actually able to do the things that we really want to. And then we prove our worst fears to be true because we never do the things we're like, oh my God, I really am a failure. I didn't even do the things I wanted to in life. Okay, I want to tie this to being a man. So there's a very specific thing that happens more to men than women. And this is something that is called in the science literature, self-handicapping. Now, generally men are socialized. These are big sweeping statements, yes? But generally men are socialized to believe that they must be leaders. They must be good at everything they do. But this is the important bit, that talent is innate. Yes, as in it's something you either have or you don't have. Women, on the other hand, are often socialized in ways that say, if you're going to do well in this world, you're going to have to work your absolute ass off. Yes. Mm -hmm. Now, 
This means that when it comes to work, if you have, a, so firstly, it means that men tend to fear failure in a much more serious way than women because they've been told they're not allowed to talk about their fears. And if they fail, it goes against being a man. Yes. And that if they don't feel like they're doing something well straight away, they can't just work harder to fix that situation because talent is innate, right? I mean, talent isn't innate. It's something that you can totally achieve. But do you see how for men, putting themselves in certain work environments can be particularly anxiety provoking because it may literally threaten their manhood being if other people see that they're not immediately a, a professional at that specific skill. So self-handicapping is a kind of self-sabotage where we create scenarios that actively get in the way of us being able to do something. So I don't know if you've ever seen this. Have you ever seen someone the night before an interview get really, really drunk? Why are you doing this? Okay. That is called self-handicapping. And what it serves is firstly, the booze gets rid of the anxiety in the short term, the fear of what if I go into this interview and fail tomorrow? And it gives you an excuse if you do fail. Well, of course I failed. I was so drunk last night. But even better, if you now get that job, oh my God, I must be such a hero. I managed to get that job even when I was so hungover. Okay. So we socialize men to fear failure and to believe that they can't just work harder in order to gain a talent, which means that when it comes to being tested in ways that might trigger their fear of failure, they may be more likely to do, do things that make it impossible, really, for them to do well the next day, but that gives them an excuse or like gives them like a really ego protecting way of saying, I'm the hero if it still goes all right. So I know that was a very long answer to your question about kind of gender and how men start to be more vulnerable. I think it's an important one. And I think if you're a man listening to this, what I'd like to say is failure, well, firstly, getting things wrong is not failure. That's the first thing we need to break the link, right? If you don't do something perfectly, you haven't failed. Yeah. You've learned something, right? The imaginary only... perfect standard. Yes. Yeah. yes. Our brain learns how to do things, whether it's playing tennis or perfecting a drawing by making mistakes. That's literally when your brain, the attention switches on. It's like, oh, something's wrong here. What do I have to do next time? So if you can reframe getting things not quite right as part of the learning process. And then, and I do think this is really scary, start uh, purposely failing or making mistakes as often as you can, but in safe ways. So again, maybe you burn the bacon at dinner tonight, but you don't tell anyone why you're doing it. And you slowly expose yourself to making getting things wrong and then trying to work harder to gain talent in the thing that you care about. And over time, as you expose yourself to kind of failure and imperfection and gain a sense that when you work hard at something, you get better at it you will stop self-sabotaging as often as you do, if you do. Right, like, like desensitizing to that to yes. that feeling. Yes, desensitizing yourself to failure and then build up your belief that talent is gained through practice, not kind of bestowed on you through your DNA. <laughs> Beautiful, so cool. I'm sure like people will, will, because again, maybe some people never even consider 
this you know situation a problem be like oh that's just how it is there is i don't remember the name now i have it on my phone somewhere this there's a thing manual for juggling something something uh and then at some point uh you know we like with three balls like in circus and yes. then the guy says okay the first exercise you're gonna do you're gonna take these balls throw them in the air and let them fall 50 times oh my you know, god because then after 50 times the ball falls so it's not scary anymore because yeah. that's the thing you start with i'm like oh this is genius you know, it's like redefining your your relationship with, with failure. And there is another, one of my favorite, there's a podcast interview with a girl called Sarah Blakely, which okay. is, uh, she made, she became a billionaire with spandex, something, something. And she's dope. And then she has this incredible energy. And she talks about when she was a kid and she said that her uh, her father, to her and, her and her siblings, when they would come from school or something, you know, she the first thing he would ask them would be like, what's up kids? What have you failed at today? Because that means that if you failed, you tried, yeah. so you win. Oh, I so love see, it. It's the same thing. You just flip it. Yeah. I'm like, oh, this is so cool. Because we consider sometimes avoiding failure because if you fail means you did bad. It's like, no, you did good because you went for yeah. it. 100%. Right? Also, there's some really lovely kind of science to back this up, which is um, we learn fastest when we're able to do a task 85% of the time, but 15% of the time we get it wrong. I think this is really, really helpful because it really challenges this idea of, no, no, I have to get it right every time. If you get it right every time, what is your brain learning? It's only learning that fluke is how to get forward, yeah. right? You're not actually learning any skill. And also we don't want to set it so that you're putting yourself out, uh, putting yourself in situations where you feel like thwarted every day, right? We don't want you to be doing tasks that you fail at 100% of the time. 15% is this kind of magic number, right? So every if you were to do it 20 times, you kind of fell at it twice. Yeah. Getting it wrong is the best way for your brain to rewire as quickly as possible in order for you to be able to do your tasks. Go get it wrong. Yeah, go get it wrong, people. <laughs> <laughs> right? It's funny because like sometimes I, I, I've, I've done that. I do that. Sometimes I'm sure a lot of people do. You wait till you're going to get it perfect, right? Yeah. So that kind of paralyzed because you know oh i don't have enough information yet i don't have the right thing yet i don't have and then again it's funny like my girlfriend has this system where she's like i don't give a shit i go for it you know and she goes like i do it very blah, 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 and then i do many and then i correct the mistakes and it's yeah. been proven with her studies and her jobs that she's like two three four times more productive than anybody else because okay. then she made like 20 wrong and five right and the other people are like you did five but one is right and then yeah. at the same time. So it's interesting. Uh, this is so good. I'm sure that people will, will relate. You know, again, this is lots of creatives, but you can do this in it, like you said, in any field. And one very quick thing, because again, all this beautiful stuff you talk about is in this book, which I definitely recommend everybody to read, A Manual for Being Human by Dr. Sophie Moore. Um, real quick, the way that we grew up affects us a lot. So sometimes, again, there is nothing wrong with you. It's not necessarily not to blame someone else or something else, but be like, there is also a component of your experience shaped you. So, you know, your patterns have a, a reason for being like that, right? So how much does that affect us? I mean, of course, you change, you know, from people to people. But... It really varies people to person to person, but um, our, we come into the world when our brain is roughly, and this is a gross oversimplification, like a third developed, 
right? Because otherwise we literally, our heads would not be able to get outside of the body, right? And also we would drain all of the resources from the parent that we were kind of inside of. But so you come out into the world and your brain is about third developed. And then if you imagine your DNA is like the building blocks of a house, and then the world is the environment in which, or the terrain that you'd build your house on, you know how you would build a house to fit the terrain? That's kind of what happens with your brain. So your brain finishes developing depending on what's going on in your world. So for people who grew up in kind of safe environments, I now mean physically and emotionally safe, um, where their kind of caregivers were able to see their emotional needs and make sense of them for them. And most of the time get it right, right? Keeping them kind of clothed, emotionally safe and fed then that person's brain is able to wire in a way that says the world is safe. We just need to focus on learning. However, if you came out into a world where there was either physical or emotional danger, your brain prioritizes looking for danger and keeping you physically safe, whether that means kind of making sure you run away whenever you hear certain sounds, whether it means you're dissociating, as in that's literally that you kind of um go into this kind of numb state whenever there's danger so it can keep you physically safe your brain priorities prioritizes safety over learning right and in this second case that would mean that going through life whilst it's absolutely possible to change these things you're going to notice that you're hyper vigilant for threat a lot of the time so those are two quite extreme examples, but I think they're really good examples that show our childhood really does shape who we are as adults. Not only that, we learn about how to be in relationships through those early blueprints given to us by the people who related to us early on. Now that means, again, oversimplifying, let's say for example, your caregivers and the people in your life were consistent with you. You're gonna grow up thinking, I'm worthy of people spending time with me. People find me valuable. I can express my needs and they won't run away. Whereas around 50% of the population didn't have that. They had some kind of mix of either caregivers and family members who were inconsistent, um, as in like one minute meeting their needs and the next minute being totally unavailable or in need of their emotional support. Now that person might learn, I don't know. I don't know when someone's gonna be there for me. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna make as many attempts as possible to get their attention because at some point it's going to work. Now those people, as they go through life, they're often talked about as in inverted commas being needy, right? Because they are always initiating activity and saying, I need your kind of contact. The other group, although there's many other groups, if they were consistently uh, neglected or didn't have their needs met. They might learn early on, well, there's nothing I can do that's going to get people to pay attention to me in the way that I would like. So they become hyperlogical. They shut off from their emotions. They keep people at arm's length and they're like, yeah, I don't really think or feel about things. I'm more like a cat, right? I can relate to you, but I'm, you know, I'm going to come to you on my own terms. I'm such a cat, 100%. So if you imagine, so the securely attached is the first people, the people who tend to think I'm worthy of connection and it's safe to be in connection. The second ones, which I said often get described as needy. There's nothing wrong with being needy. I hate that phrase. Um, they're more like a puppy. Yes, yeah? like, hi, hi, I'm here, I'm here. And then the final one's more like a cat. 
all of these make absolute sense. Almost everything that we do as adults, unless we've worked really hard at changing it, is something that we developed as a safety skill, something that kept us safe or kept us surviving as a child. So being a cat, often people might think, I don't know about you, but people have often said to me, like, sometimes it feels like your walls are up. And I'm like, what? It doesn't feel like I'm doing anything weird or different. It's just how I kind of adapted as a kid. Does that make sense? So throughout our life, we might have these themes that may be totally just because of our DNA or totally spontaneous because of what's happening in our world. But often there are these things that are integral to our personality and our character that we adopted when we were children because our brain was developing during that time and trying to make sense of how to navigate a very complicated world. And it's very hard to understand those things by yourself. Yeah, 100%. So, so that's why support system in forms of either knowledge or specialists, like you said, someone really help you. So to kind of show you the, the light, right? Yeah, and also to show you, I think what's really interesting here is that humans exist to be in relationships, right? As in, we only survived as a species because we were able to connect with other similar species hominids, right? You know, it used to be thought of survival of the fittest was around being like the strongest and the most violent. Actually, we know it's survival of the friendliest. That's how we adapted as, as a species and we're the ones that survived over all the other hominids. And one of the things that's really important about understanding how our childhood affects our relationships is actually most of us could probably get through life if we weren't going to date or have friends or have to have work relationships without ever thinking about how we relate to others. But the reality is we need each other to feel good. And let's say, for example, you're a bit of a cat, but you're drawn to people who are puppies. We end up in these very stressful scenarios where the person we're dating or the friend is like, hi, 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 I'm here. And we're like, oh God, oh God, I need more space. <laughs> and this is where a lot of conflict arises in relationships. And the reason I want to mention this is sometimes it's really important to learn about psychology in order to improve our personal mental health, to make sure we don't burn out, to make sure that we don't end up depressed or anxious or to manage depression, anxiety, if we are already there. But one of the things that isn't talked about enough is that learning about your psychology will help you connect with the people around you in ways that makes your life much more fulfilling and will sometimes address that anxiety, that depression, that self-sabotage purely because you feel safe in a relationship and you have someone looking at you in a way that says, I think you're really bloody great. <laughs> yeah. And often that is all that we need in life. Yeah. Um, I'm going to ask you one last thing. This is a bit mm. more like personal, if you, if you don't mind. What, what can you think about uh, either something you learn, an advice you've been given, like a lesson you've learned because of circumstances, whatever, that you still carry with you, you know, I wouldn't say every day, but a lot, and it still helps you on a regular basis? Yeah, 100%. It's easy for me to answer. Okay, when I used to have really bad panic attacks and I couldn't leave the house, I ended up... Um, kind of doing a few things, mindfulness, CBT, whatever, to uh, face kind of the anxious fears. But single thing that stands out is someone said to me that if you can get to the point where when your symptoms come on, you're able to say, bring it on, you will find it's the scariest, but the fastest solution to your symptoms. 
And I now apply, bring it on to every area of my life. So let's say, for example, I'm starting to feel a bit stressed or anxious. I'll say to myself, bring it on, brain, do your worst, let the symptoms get as bad as you want. And the moment I do, because I'm no longer trying to control it, and I, I'm basically saying I'm not afraid, that anxiety, that fear switches off. But also, let's say I'm in work and I'm just about to self-sabotage because I fear I'm about to fail. I fear I'm about to re be rejected. And my body's like, oh, my goodness, run. I'm like, no, bring it on. Do your worst. If I'm going to fail, I'm going to fail. and I'm going to learn something from it. So that expression of I'm willing to put myself in a scenario that feels scary and I'm going to just say to myself, bring it on. Whatever happens will happen and I will survive it has changed my life. Nice. This is this is incredible. This is like again a lifetime of you know condensed wisdom. I love it. And uh, Sophie, if people would like to you know follow you, get a hold of you, you know get your stuff, your you know your new book. Yeah. Amazing. Well, so as you said, I'm Dr. Sophie Mort. I also go by Dr. Soph. Uh, so for a manual for being human, <clears throat> that should be available wherever you buy your books. It's come out in. It's come out and is coming out in 12 different languages. So if you don't read English, that's fine. Um, Unstuck, it's called Unstuck, Five Steps to Break Bad Habits and Get Out of Your Own Way. Should again be available wherever you buy your books. If you're wanting to get free delivery worldwide, Blackwells is a good place to go. Otherwise, my website is drsof.com and I have Instagram, which is at underscore drsof. But also, if you just want freebies that get delivered into your inbox, I do a bi-weekly email, which you can find on my website. And it means you can just dip your toe in. You know, we were saying earlier about sometimes you just need to observe other people doing things a different way. If you're not quite ready to buy a book, if you're not quite ready to make the changes in your life, getting a free newsletter is a very easy way to just be like, I'm going to take or leave this information, but maybe over time it will drip feed into your mind and you'll notice yourself start naturally to do your things in life in a different way awesome sophie thank you so much it was gold again thank you so much for making the making the time and uh no, thank you. and uh enjoy the time you know the sun thank in la you. if you ever want a break that is closer come to barcelona we get you a nice dinner oh, you know it's a very yes, nice place and enjoyable to be. thank you and, so uh, much so nice to meet you have such a lovely day likewise thank you very much bye. thank you Sophie. bye thank you bye